The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is God's word. Well, this week is week number 11 of a 12-week series through the message of Acts. And so we are so close. We've been working through uh, the message of Acts. We said in week one, week number one, as a reminder for the first time, if you're, if you're joining us, that the context of Acts begins right before Jesus' ascension. It's right after his resurrection. He has been crucified, and three days have passed, and he has risen from the dead, and he presents himself to his disciples. He teaches them. And before he ascends into heaven, the disciples ask him a really important question. They said, are you at this time going to restore your kingdom? Is it going to happen now? And what they're asking is, are you going to now bring the, the, the forever peace that you've promised? The restoration of, of all of creation, the forgiveness of sins, the, the, the wiping away of all tears, the, the removal of all wickedness on the face of the earth. Is that going to happen now? Are you going to defeat all of our enemies, both, both physical and spiritual? Jesus answers them uh, somewhat to the effect of saying this, don't worry so much about when that's going to happen. Instead, I want you to be concerned about what I desire to do through you and in you for my purposes in the whole world. And he says to them, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses of all that I desire to do in the world. And so go be my witnesses. Tell people about me. Tell them all that I have told you. And so the whole point of this series, if you look at the front of your bulletin, Faithful Witness, the whole point of Acts is this. Now that we're at the end of our series, let me tell you the whole point of it all. As a reminder, that we are to be people so connected with, in communion with Jesus that our words and our deeds act as a witness to the good news of the grace of God. That is the whole purpose of the message of Acts. In fact, it's the whole purpose of our very lives that we would be people so connected in communion with Jesus that what we say and what we do and how we act and how we speak and the posture with which we carry ourselves in this world would be a testimony to the good news of God's grace. And that's it. That's our very purpose for our existence. The Bible knows nothing about a follower of Jesus who is not a participant in the mission of Jesus for the world. 
That's not just the whole point of Acts, it's the whole point of our very lives. But there's a lot of reasons why we, we don't do that. There's a lot of reasons and hindrances and obstacles that we face in our life, reasons why we are not faithful witnesses, why we don't engage with Christ and, and participate with Him in His purposes in the world, why we don't tell people about Jesus. Let me give you just a couple reasons real quick and, and do some inventory in your own life for what reason, these reasons you might not have a very strong public faith. I'll give you just a few, and then I'll show you how Paul in our passage shows us a much better way. First reason might be this. You might be too reliant on the church. If your most advanced form of evangelism is inviting someone to church and introducing them to me, you might be too reliant on the church. If your faithful witness and public faith is saying, hey, you should come to church sometime. Here's my pastor. He'll tell you all about what we believe. You might be too reliant. You might think of your, your, your public faith or your faithful witness as too, too churchy. Everything revolves around the four walls of the church. Everything that, that happens with your witness happens within the, the confines of what we do on, on Sunday morning. Too tied to what we do here. Another reason might be this. Maybe this is you. You're too emotional about your faith. What do I mean? You really want people to change. You want people to change so bad. You see the brokenness in the world. You see the brokenness in our culture, in our neighborhoods, in our city. But you don't put in the effort to appeal to people's understanding. You just want people to change already. Just believe in Jesus and everything will be better. And things don't happen that way. You just want people to accept Christ and just to be better people. And then the problems of the world will go away. You might be too emotional. You might not be putting in the time to appeal to people's reason, to talking with them, to sitting down and, and having persuasive conversations. You just want to tell them the truth and expect them to change. Is that you? Here's another one. Maybe you are too superficial with your relationship. You engage in, in brief encounters with people in your life. You, you brought your, your favorite Christian mug to work and no one's talked to you about Jesus and you don't know why. Why haven't you transformed your office? You wore the right t-shirt. You didn't say the bad words. And yet no one is changing. And so maybe you think that with a clear, like a real quick pass-through, or quick slogans, or words, or, 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 or scriptures taken out of passage, but, or taken out of context, that people should be changed. And you're not going deep in relationship with people. You're not engaging in real relationship and friendship with them. And then there's possibly the most dangerous of all reasons. It's what we see most clearly in our passage uh, this morning, is that you might be too religious without personally experiencing the reality of Jesus. You see, in our passage, it's possible to go to church every week, to engage in spiritual activity of all kinds, to give to the offering, to, to admire biblical teaching, and yet not have the life of Christ in us. And yet, because our lives are not transformed, and we look no different from the world outside of the church, we are not a public witness. We are not a faithful witness. We're not a bold witness because our lives have not been changed. Our lives are not a, a window into the grace of God. There's nothing attractive about it. There's nothing that, that causes people around us to say, there's something that is different about you. There's something that is captivating. There's something that's winsome and beautiful. What is it? What do you have that I don't have? And so we might be very spiritual, religious. We might be engaged in countless exhausting activities in the church, but the life of Jesus doesn't 
live in us. One of the main reasons we don't talk about Jesus is because he's not living in us. He hasn't changed us. Which of these is your biggest reality? Why don't you look at your life and ask yourself, which is my biggest problem? Am I depending on the church to do everything for me? Am I, am I too emotional about my faith and not really having thoughtful conversations with people about what the Bible says? Am I too superficial, not going deep into people's lives and actually having friendship with them? Or is my life any different? If the Holy Spirit were taken away from me, if I woke up in the morning and the Holy Spirit was ripped out of your life, would anything change? Which of these is your biggest reality? Maybe you say, well, it's a four-way tie. It's a four-way tie. That's yes. The answer is yes. To the question, which is my biggest struggle? The answer is yes. All of them. In response to that, hopefully we can ask ourselves, how do I find a way to share what I have with people I care about? How do I find a way to share what has been most cherished and important in my life with the people that I care about, the people to whom God has called me to serve? If we look at verse 8, 9, and 10, we see Paul at his peak. We see Paul now at his climax in ministry. He is on his third missionary journey. He has had a ton of years of experience and exercise in evangelism and, and ministry work. He has traveled from place to place. And we see Paul, we see a convergence of Paul's life. What do I mean? A convergence of his skill, his gifting, his opportunity, his wisdom and experience. Everything in Paul's life, he has peaked. This is our best Paul that we see. And in verse 8, 9, and 10, he is showing us what being a faithful witness look like, looks like from a very seasoned, mature Christian. And he's also showing us what it looks like for us as well. What does it look like for us? What strategies and habits and beliefs and practices? What does it look like for us to be a faithful witness? And here we have three important elements to consider. And if you're wanting to find a way to share what you have with people you most care about, then consider these three things. First, the place of your witness, the tone of your witness, and the depth of your witness. We're going to look at each of those. First, let's look at the place of our witness, the place of Paul's witness in this passage. Paul starts in the synagogue. He goes there for reasons that are theological in nature, mostly. Paul felt called by God to go first to the synagogue, first to God's people. Paul was called first to go to the religious people and then to the irreligious people. The equivalent of the synagogue in our culture is the church. It's here where scriptures are read, where prayers are offered, where those who come to the synagogue or come to the church are generally people who are uh, biblically literate, meaning that they have a, they have a, they have a general understanding of, of what it means to, to go to church, to sit under the teaching of the, of the scriptures. And in our day, there is still an enormous opportunity to evangelize the religious, just like in Paul's day. There's a common idiom of our time, what, when you say, when you are saying something that's obvious, that you're, you're saying something that people really don't need to hear, uh, you're saying things that people already know, and you admit that they already know this and you don't need to say it to them. It's, it, it's a phrase that, that says, you know, I'm really speaking to the choir. You ever heard that before? What, that just means, you know what, you already know this, I don't need to tell you. I've, I've met some people in choirs. They are, they are in great need of Jesus. 
They're in great need of, of hearing the gospel preached to them. So there's this idea that religious people don't really need the gospel preached to them and taught to them, and, and they don't need it repeated to them in their lives. The thought that people in the church have no need for a gospel witness might be one of the biggest neglects of the church. That if you go to church and are familiar with the Bible, uh, then you don't need the gospel to continue to go deep into your life. And I'm not saying that the church is filled with unbelievers, but that there never ceases to be a time where we reach the, the end of the gospel in our life. There's never a time where we get beyond our need for the gospel. We need to hear it over and over and over again. We spent 11 weeks in Acts. And I hope over the course of these two plus months, you've asked yourself, where can I be more faithful in my witness to the grace of God in my life? I believe a prime place for that is in the church. As it was for Paul, to the religious people. They weren't off limits. It became a prime place for ministry. Just a couple applications. We have an enormous mission field at our church. About a third of our entire congregation are not saved. And they're about 30 feet on the other side of this wall, terrorizing the teachers right now and one another. We have one of the biggest mission fields right here in our congregation. I'm talking about children, of course. I'm talking about those who have yet to, to trust in Jesus and make a, a credible a profession of faith, of saying, I know what sin is and I'm going to, to run from sin and I'm going to trust in Jesus who died for me. I'm going to live my life out of love for him. A third of our congregation has yet to say that. And we're looking for opportunity. We're looking for ways, well, God, how can you use me? How can you use me in the church? I mean, there's, there's people much more skilled than me and competent than me. There's people that have, have even greater character than I and more time than I. What can I possibly do? Our children are deeply affected by sin. Amen? Okay, that's something we can all agree on. We're, they're deeply affected by sin. And we are called to minister to them as developing souls. And for some reason, when we say, I'm in the toddler room this morning serving today, we don't say it with a smile on our face and with joy in our hearts. Yeah, I'm in the toddler room today. Pray for me. <laughs> and yet we are being missionaries to one of the greatest mission fields in our church. We're called to minister to developing souls, laying a foundation of faith that we pray would result in a faith encounter with Jesus. What a neat opportunity. You do not even have to leave the church to do that. Well, let's think of another one, just Sunday morning, just people right in here. How can you engage as a, as a, as a faithful witness and live out your faith in a public way, just even in our worship? We come to rehearse the gospel story each week as we come to engage in God's word and seek to respond to it and receive it and sing praises to God. We're modeling for one another what it means to humbly depend on God. As we prepare our hearts, we don't just rush into the service and say, okay, well, I'm here and that's half the battle. No, we prepare our hearts and say, God, how can I receive what you're going to give today? How can I respond in faith? How can I build up my brothers and sisters? How can I remember together with others what you have done for us? And then we become a body that is 
bound together by Jesus' love, singing in one voice, responding in one voice, believing in one truth. We get to be a witness to one another. Just because you might be a Christian doesn't mean you don't need the gospel preached to you. I need to hear it every week. I need to hear it every day. That's why I'm here. I hope that's why you are here, because you forgot. And you say, now why is it again that I live my life? Why is it again that if I sin, I'm still, I'm still loved by God? Why is it again that I don't have to worship my work or my identity or my image or my, my, my accomplishments? Why is it again that I can forgive people that have wronged me? Why is it again that my suffering doesn't get the last word? Because I forget all of those answers. We need to respond and remember it together. And then there's life groups, our small group communities, where everyone becomes a teacher of the gospel. As we share our lives and submit to God's word, we are pointing one another to where our hope really rests. Not as isolated people, but God's bound together people. We, 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 we rehearse it together. We, we teach one another. We remind people of God's word. We pray for them. If you're in a life group, you have a prime context to be a witness to your faith. Just because you hang out with other Christians doesn't mean you have no opportunity to evangelize, to be a witness to your faith. Now, before you think I'm just trying to get involved or trying to get you involved in the volunteering our kids ministry, which is great, there's actually a green card on the welcome table <laughs> if you want to sign up for that. But that's not why I'm mentioning this. These are just a few examples. I'm sure you could think of other examples. How can I teach and proclaim the gospel right here with other religious people? We need it. But that's not why I'm telling you. Let me say this. Even though the church provides significant spiritual activity, it will not be where most of your ministry happens. Even though this is a prime place for you to live out your witness to others, it is not where most of it should happen. Though we do ministry within the church, we should do far more outside the church. If we are to follow Paul's example, we will not do most of our ministry in the church with religious people. We will do it outside with irreligious people, with people who don't know Jesus, in everyday environments, in our, the marketplace, and in the club, and in the neighborhood, and in our homes. We'll look for opportunities to make our faith public within our everyday routines. When Paul's message was rejected by the religious people in the church, he withdrew from the synagogue and he moved to a neutral public place of meeting and said, well, then I'll go where the people are who have yet to hear about this. He rented a building between a CVS and a Domino's, I don't know, and he, he met there in the community and said, well, then I'll, this is where I will meet. I'll rent a space where everyone goes, everybody walks by. I'll rent a neutral place. The people that will never set foot in a church might come there to that lecture hall. So he rented out Tyrannus's hall, which is a great guy, a great name. He wasn't a dinosaur. Um, <laughs> but it's an awesome name. He used it, Tyrannus used it, Tyrannus, it means tyrant. Good parents, right? I think everybody wants to name their newborn that. <laughs> I know I want to name it Tyrannus, but I shouldn't. <laughs> Tyrannus had um, this lecture hall, and he lectured. He met there in the mornings. He would meet there um, at dawn to about 11 o'clock. 
And at 11 o'clock, the city would stop working and he would stop teaching and the whole city would take a break. They would take time off at 11 o'clock. In Ephesians, or in, in, in Ephesus, this city, work began at sunrise and at 11 o'clock, everything stopped. The city stopped and went silent. Not for 11sies, they weren't hobbits. They stopped for siesta. They stopped for their, their siesta. They stopped for their siesta. It was a five-hour break in the middle of the day, and then they would go back to work at 4 p.m. to about 9.30 p.m. at night. That's what historians will tell us. And so in the middle of the day, the city was silent. Historians even tell us that it was more likely to find someone asleep in Ephesus at 1 in the afternoon than 1 in the morning. Paul did not use this time as a time to sleep. It didn't, he did not use this as a time to put up his feet and to sit on the couch and to break when everyone else was breaking. Instead, Paul used this as a time to be creative, to be intentional, to meet the people where they were, to go into the community, and to use the context of that culture and, and what was going on in the city to get the gospel in the hands of the people who were there. And where everyone else was not working, where he could have taken time to not work, he said, this is when I'm going to speak. You see, Paul worked, he was a tent maker, we know, from, from Acts. And in this time in Ephesus, he was a tent maker. He, he worked with leather, and he, he built tents and sold them. He worked at sun up to about 11 o'clock, and then after 11, he worked for five hours as he taught in this neutral place, and then he went back to work at four in the afternoon making tents. Paul didn't use this time to sleep. He used it to make himself available to others. What could this type of public availability look like for you? You know, perhaps after work and dinner, instead of retreating to your couch, a couple times a week you invite coworkers out for happy hour. Perhaps you open up your home and your dinner table to neighbors. Perhaps you, you pick a neutral place to gather and invite dialogue for how the Bible and what the Bible says about what it means to be a human being, what it says about how it relates to politics and issues of marriage and power and relationships and you consider how to get people talking about what God says about all of life and you find places to do that it starts at a coffee shop with a few people and that group grows and you, you open you meet at someone's home and you think where can I meet with people that would never go to church how can I get them to talk about things that really matter could you think of some things? What could that look like for you? The point of Paul's strategy is that he is creative. He is intentional to use opportunities in the city for him to be a witness of the gospel. We know that the place of witness is important. We know that there's a place of witness with the religious people. We know there's a place of witness in the community. And we ought to be vitally connected to what's happening in our community. But what can we learn from Paul's tone? Let's look at the tone of his witness in our passage. Luke uses several words to describe Paul's tone and his preaching, but two of them stand out more than any others as they are used more frequently than others. The two words used here in verse 8, they are the words bold and reason. It's a common theme throughout Acts. When Paul spoke with boldness, he spoke with reason or persuasion. And yet he didn't give up being very bold. Boldness. Now, to be bold, what does it mean to be bold? To be bold does not mean that you speak everything that can be said in the first time you have opportunity to say it. 
oh, I know about this subject. Let me tell you everything I know about this subject. That's not what it means to be bold. To be bold does not mean you go out of your way to be offensive and annoying. To be bold does not mean you excuse your nastiness for courage and say, you, and, and, and say well, you know what? Jesus himself said that I, that, that I will be hated for him, and so this is why I'm being hated. It's because I just love Jesus so much. No, you're nasty. No one wants to be around you. You're not being courageous. To be bold does not mean to express raw feelings about something. Well, I'm just feeling it, and I just need to get this off my chest. Oh, there, I'm such a bold evangelist. To be bold does not mean you're simply keeping it real. What does bold mean? Paul gives us great hints in, his, in this this collection of words of persuasion and reason and boldness. To be bold means to be clear in the face of fear. That was Paul's goal. To be clear in the face of fear. Have you ever walked into a room knowing that you needed to say something to a person or a group of people that you knew were going to hate you for it? Just by saying that, some of you just like are popping a Xanax. Okay, some of, you, some of you have made it your very life purpose to avoid situations just like that. I've made it my life goal to never be in a situation like that. The most terrifying thing for you might be to say something to somebody knowing that they're not going to like what you have to say. And so you never say it. It's cowardly. It's not loving. It's cowardly. In a previous sermon, we saw that Peter and Silas were put in prison for preaching the gospel, and they were beaten to an inch of their life, and they were released after being imprisoned and beaten, and they were warned and threatened to never preach of Jesus ever again. And they ran from the prison to go to their group of Christian friends, and they said, let's pray together. And they did not pray for safety. They did not pray for protection. They did not pray that they would not be harmed. What did they pray for? We learned that they prayed for boldness. They said, God, give us boldness. They were saying, God, give us an opportunity and wisdom to be clear in the face of fear. They want to kill us. Lord, help us to be bold. Oh, how the church needs Christians who are much less good at saying the first thing that comes to their mind and excusing nastiness for courage and much more people that are bold with a passion for clarity and persuasion and reason in the face of fear. The church needs this now more than ever. Oh, how the church needs boldness with reasonableness and persuasion, bringing thoughtful arguments into very important conversations of culture and politics and race and marriage and parenting and citizenship. Oh, how the church needs Christians who say, I'm not just going to, I'm not going to jump onto a, uh, a slogan I'm not going to embrace a picture. I'm not going to say the first thing that comes to my mind. I am going to seek why I believe what I believe, and I am going to reason with others why the good news of God's word is not only true, but beautiful, thoughtful, 
helpful, relevant, life-giving. To be bold in the face of fear. I remember the once, one of the times I was most fearful and needed a sense of boldness. It was several years ago. In order to be ordained in our denomination, uh, you must go through a series of exams. And these exams consisted of standing before a hundred other pastors where they were able to ask any question they wanted, any question as it related to the Bible or doctrine or even church history or church polity. Anyone can answer. There was no question off limits. And I remember these exams several years ago and how terrifying they were. And I remember one question so specifically because it was really memorable. And I'll tell you why. One question from the audience I'll never forget. He stood up, he raised his hand, and he stood up and he said, what is the full preterist view and do you embrace it? And I said, I, I know this. Now, just for you if you don't know, I mean, basically what this means is he was asking, do you believe that all the prophecy in the book of Revelation has already happened or is some of it yet to come? Okay, that's what it means. The room was silent. I took the microphone. I took a deep breath. I puffed out my chest and I gave an eloquent, confident, and bold answer. I felt good. And his response made me feel even better. He sat down and he said, thank you so much. You gave me the exact answer I was looking for. And I said, I nailed it. I nailed it. I'm so good at this. I mean, give me a church. Give me people to preach to. I'm so good. And he says, do you know why I know that you gave me the answer that I was looking for? And I said, why is that? He said, because everything you said had absolutely nothing to do with the question I asked. And if you are that wrong about that, I know for certain you don't believe in it. And I was like, oh. I blew it. I was bold and confident and certain and absolutely wrong. <laughs> so just saying something with boldness, saying something with confidence, doesn't mean that it is good or right. Boldness with ignorance does not help anyone. Boldness with clarity and truth is what Paul was after. That's what he's looking for. When we're talking about the beauty of Jesus and the truth of the gospel, we need to know what to say. But not only that, we need to know how to say it. We need to know how to present it to people so that they can not only know the truth, but so they can understand it, so they can reason with it. Our culture says that everyone is entitled to their own truth. Not a single Christian in all the Bible has ever said anything remotely close to that. The only person that I can recall ever saying that was Pilate. When Jesus said, the very purpose of my coming was to bear witness to the truth, and he says, well, what is truth? Your truth, my truth, his truth. We all have truth. Follow your own truth. Your truth is your truth. You do you, and let me do me. Not a single Christian, not a single evangelist, not a single follower of Jesus should ever, ever say everyone is entitled to their own set of truth. Jesus says, I've come to bear witness to the truth. My word is truth. Now be witnesses. You are my witnesses. The lack of popular opinion was never a deterrent for Paul in his witness to the truth. Threats of his own life and safety were never deterrents, arguments, 
We're never deterrence. In fact, in the next chapter, Paul says, I need to stay in Ephesus. And his, his friends say, why do you need to stay? And he says, because there is great opposition here. The primary reason that he wants to stay there talking longer with people is because it is not popular. And for us, we would say, well, there's, the Spirit's not leading here. There's no opportunity here. No one's listening. Everyone thinks I'm crazy. No one's believing this. Everyone's living in sin. I'm going to go to people that really understand what I'm saying and can tell me, and, and just can tell me that they love everything I'm saying. So, our culture says it's okay for you to believe what you believe. Just don't tell me what I should believe. That's your truth. You do you, and I'll do me. Jesus says, I've come to bear witness to the truth. Now go be my witnesses. There is a God. There is a God, and He is sovereign. He has created us, and He loves us, and He is good, and He's given us everything that we need and want in Himself. And, he is, and we look to Him and say, no, I don't want that. I don't want to do it your way. I want to do it my way. Thank you very much. I know better than you. And this sin and rebellion has broken us. This neglect of God's good has ruined us. It's broken our relationships. It has broken our relationship with God, our relationship with others. It is the cause of all personal and corporate sin, the reason behind every kind of abuse, the foundation of all kinds of shame. The root of all kinds of sadness that we experience is because of our tendency and desire to not listen to God, but rather do things our own way. And God has every right to leave us to ourselves and to leave us in that position with that curse of sin over our lives, but he does not. Instead, he promised he's going to rescue us. As quick as the curse comes into the world in Genesis chapter 3, just as God is speaking curse to creation and to Adam and Eve and to the devil, as quickly as he says that and finishes that, he promises that he will fix it. And it will come at great cost to himself. And he sends his own son, Jesus Christ, to be like us, to become like us, and to, to become like us in every way except without sin, and to die the death that we deserve to die, to remain buried for three days and rise from the grave, releasing all who turn to him from the bondage of sin, defeating death itself, all who would turn to him and hope in him and trust in him and believe in him would have life and have it abundantly. He rose from the grave and he appeared to hundreds of people proclaiming this good news and turning hearts to believe in him and proclaiming salvation in his life and death and resurrection. And this is real history that really happened. Jesus is telling us there is one story in the entire universe and it's my story and if you don't believe in this story, then you remain dead. But if you believe this story, this good story, you have life, you have freedom, and you will be bound in a relationship with me so personal, so relational, a bond of relationship and peace and love that will never be taken away. And the good news of the gospel is that instead of getting what we deserve to get, we're given life and love and relationship with God in spite of everything we've done wrong. That's the truth. That's the truth. 
And it is very unpopular. People don't like it. To be bold and clear is to combine argument with persuasion. To talk to people about why they believe what they believe. To talk to people on the merits of their beliefs. The credibility of their beliefs. Paul's presentation of the gospel was serious. There was not a presentation, it was not a presentation that consisted of words, you know what, but that's just, you know, take it or leave it. You know, this is my thought and this is what Jesus did. Paul was so captivated by the the love of of the gospel. He was so filled with joy. He believed in the gospel so much that he, he had to talk to people. He had to share it with people. He had to press into people and say, but why do you believe that? Isn't this better? Isn't this true? Tell me why this isn't true. That's a good point. Now listen to this point. I like what you're saying, but what about this? But what if you're not, not right in what you believe? What if, what if that doesn't work? And, and look at what Jesus has done. What's your answer to those things? So it's this give and take. It's this dialogue. It's this conversation. We live in an age where the most persuasive elements tend to be emotional, not reasonable. Can you think about that for a moment? Fear, pleasure, happiness, loneliness, anger, envy, jealousy, all of those things. Those are the things that are, that are motivating us today. Those are the, the greatest arguments consist in those emotions. Do this and live a certain way or believe this thing or else you'll feel this way. Well, I don't want to feel that way. Well, then, this is the party you want to vote for. Okay. I don't want to feel that way. Well, then, this is how you want to live. This is what you want to give your money to. Okay. If you want to be really countercultural, if you want to be different than everybody, if you want to live your life distinct from the culture, then do this. Make every day and big decisions of your life based on reasons attached to them not just emotions. If you want to be countercultural, if you want to be different, if you want to stand out, then have a deep and profound reason to why you live the way you live. Don't just do it because you feel it. Don't be, just do it because you're avoiding fear or something you're afraid of. Don't just do it because there's a promise of happiness tied to it. Do it because it's true. Do it because it's right. People being angry is not a reason. People might be angry at what I have to say. The fear of being accused of being unloving is not a reason. If someone says, people get offended if I do this or, do, or believe this, that's not a reason. Saying it's just not the right thing to do is not a reason. Slogans are not reasons. We're not living in a culture that values thoughtful reasons. And so when a Christian is thoughtful in why we live the way we live, first of all, it's going to be confusing. But then, it's going to be life-giving. People are going to want it. People are going to, to feel released from the captive void of reasons for why they do what they, di- they do, and they're going to want to know more. It will comfort them. It will soothe them. It will be a light in a weary world that's trying to grasp onto meaning, and Christians are the only ones who have thoughtful and true meaning for why we do what we do and why we live the way we live. Christians are the only ones who have the story that tells us where we can truly find comfort and life. So we should try to persuade people. 
We should talk and have dialogue. We should ask questions and respond boldly. Finally, finally, the depth of our witness. Here we see that Paul identifies with the people of the city and got to know and understand their way of life. And it took a long time. We learn that Paul stays here for years. Three years he stays in Ephesus. Two of those years it is spent teaching five hours a day after a full day of work for six days a week for two years. Again, Luke is so careful to give us the details that he wants us to hear that he thinks are important. We know that he stayed there for a long time. He taught in the uh, dinosaurs teaching hall and Paul would wake up at dawn, he would work in, on tents, and then he would go teach in the hall. And this should give us great permission to not feel the need to say everything that needs to be said in the first time we talk with people. This should give us permission to feel that we can slow down in the pace of our conversations with people that we can talk with people and have a good conversation and, 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 and hold our tongue and say, there's so much I want to say, but I want that to wait till another time. Maybe next time, maybe a week from now, maybe a month from now. I want to build on that conversation. I, want to, I don't need to say everything I need. I don't need to seal the deal because no, we don't change people's hearts. Only God does that. You not saying something in the midst of a conversation is not going to damn anyone to hell. It's not going to save anyone either. Only God does that work. And so it gives us permission to thoughtfully engage with people in conversation and, have, and have, the, have the patience for the pace of life that the Bible talks about. Not many of us have the patience for the pace of life that the Bible talks about. It's actually quite slow and deliberate and thoughtful, and we keep returning to the same themes over and over and over again over a very long period of time. But we want to live in a microwave. Well, if I want to say it, I want it to... I want it to change that person's life. And if I'm going to share the gospel, if I'm going to share my faith, then it, what's the point if they don't receive Christ right on the spot? Well, Paul didn't believe that. Do you trust God enough to be patient with your conversations? Do you trust God enough to actually not say things at times? Do you trust God enough to, to sustain your life and the life of the person you're praying for to have another conversation, God will give you countless opportunities to right the conversations that you have wronged and messed up at, to get another try, another do-over. He will, you will never run out of opportunities to be a witness to people in your life because it's one thing that God loves to give us, opportunity to share this good news. You won't run out of opportunities Tucson tends to be a commuter city. By that, I mean people don't stay for a long time. Ephesus was the same way. It had a constant influx of visitors. This didn't deter Paul. If anything, it motivated him and caused the gospel to spread as people would come into the city and Paul would meet with them and they'd come to his lecture hall and he would teach them and have dialogue with them and he would have meals with them and, and meet with them in homes and then they would move away. And they would take this story, they would take the gospel to their, to their home, to their new, next place of work to their next city of residence. And the gospel spread this way. Do you find it difficult to really dig into relationships that you might feel, well, it might not be around in a year from now, might not be around in a month from now. 
That's terribly difficult. Our church would be 1,400 people large if no one ever left. Most, by being relocating a new job, moving away, it's terribly defeating. Well, look at all the work that we did. Look at all the times that I preached and all the Bible studies we've been a part of. What a waste. Oh, we see them taking the gospel to wherever they go. What a great thing. That's how we should view our relationships. When we don't go deep in relationships, our witness tends to be too churchy, too churchy, relying on the church when we should take the gospel ourselves to those everyday environments. When we don't go deep in relationships, it's, it's, it's often too emotional. It's lacking bold reason. Or it's too superficial. And Paul really became a part of the community that he came to serve. He stayed there. He wasn't a tourist. He became a co-citizen of that community, and so should we. If you're struggling to find a way to share what you love with people you care about, a greater depth of understanding of the gospel solves that struggle. If you want to be a faithful witness, the understanding of the gospel solves that struggle. The gospel says that God actually comes to us personally through His Holy Spirit and blesses us. He enables us to internalize the truths of His of his good news and what it means to belong to him, and it fills us with joy. The gospel did not come to us in a churchy way. What do I mean? In fact, the gospel comes to us when we were the most, innocent, when we were the most wicked and sinful people. So the gospel to come to us in a churchy way is the gospel to come to us when we got it all figured out, when we're good people, when we brushed up our act, when we turned over the new leaf, and we finally said, okay, God, I'm going to give you a chance, and God says, finally, well, well, here's my life. The gospel does not come to us in a churchy way. It actually comes to us in a very unchurchy way. It initiates with us when we were sinful and wicked people. The gospel doesn't come to us merely appealing to our emotions. God does not come to us and says, I just care about you so much, and I don't want you to die. Would you please just believe in me? He says, let me unfold for you this drama of this great story. Look at all that I have done. Look how great I am. Look at me as the creator and sustainer and governor of all that there is, seen and unseen. And look at what you have done. And look what you have deserved to not have a relationship with me. But guess what I will do? I'm going to love you anyway. And we start to learn truths about who God is and what he has done. We start to learn doctrine and real things. Our faith is not a blind faith or a blind leap in the dark. It's not merely emotional, but this truth fills our head. It overflows into our heart and spills out into a life that is lived out of the gospel. The gospel doesn't come to us as a, as a shout from heaven in a superficial way, but it comes as a person. It doesn't come, hey, just so you know, you've got to believe in God. But the Bible says that, the, that the, the word of God dwelt among us. Emmanuel God with us. God came into our lives and he pitched a tent in our backyard and says, this is where I live now. I live with you. So it's not a shout from heaven. He come, the good news comes to us as a person, relational, steadfast, regular, friendly. He becomes like us in every way. There is no better way for God to be more unsuperficial then to become a man, it is the most unsuperficial thing he could do. 
when we experience Jesus, not just knowing about him, but when we actually experience him, instead of avoiding difficult conversations about our faith, we will say, how do I find a way to share what I have with people I care about? Our problem will never be that we know the gospel too much or that we know his word too much, but that we enjoyed him far too little, that we appealed to the gospel far too infrequent, that we applied it to our everyday lives far too little. Knowing Jesus is not just about thinking, it is about knowing true things about God, and it is about that overflowing into changing our affections for God and other people, and it overflows into a witness to others with joy and reason and boldness. Let us be those kinds of people that are bold, reasonable, and giving good news to weary hearts. Let's pray.